We're getting into the home stretch of the Missouri General Assembly's legislative session, and the end result could depend on how hard Democrats like Senator Gina Walsh fight on. The Bellfountain Neighbors Democrat joins us for another edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Is Joe Manis and, and his colleague. And joining... <laughs> sorry, Joe. I, I got ahead of myself <laughs> that, a little that's bit. That's okay. And this is my day off, but I came because I'm so thrilled about our guest. Yeah. And our, our guest joining us for the third time, but the first time as the Senate Minority Leader we have in studio today... Gina Walsh, Senator from the 13th. Joe... If this excites you, you need to get a get a life. Well, I'm excited because well, the thank you both. The, the other two times you've been on our show have been great shows, and I'm not just saying that as as flattery. Although maybe I am a little. Jason's bad. known for that, but that's good. Yeah. Oh, well, you guys make it. You guys make it easy. While you still go into issues that aren't aren't always easy, but you make it comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah, because so. we're the policy wonks. Yeah. <laughs> so, most of the time. Yeah. I mean, we, we ended up, we do politics too, but policy is our bread and butters. And and the 13th district takes in a, a lot of North St. Louis County. It uh, does. And just kind of explain to our listeners. Real, what, what real quick and easy. If you're at McDonald Boulevard, east to the Mississippi, 270 north to uh, St. Charles County, and then when you get to Halls Ferry near Ferguson, we hop over and cut diagonally through Ferguson a little bit, Jennings, uh, Delwood, so you that take, area, and you all of Bellfontaine. You take in Florissant? I do. I take in yeah. all of Florissant and Hazel, half of Hazelwood, Delwood, Blackjack. And I hate to list them because it's inevitably you forget somebody and you hear about it. Yeah. So just well, all those little municipalities. Well, I know Senator Chappelle Nadal has many more. She is the most, I think, and it's a, a huge list. And I congratulations to her when she can name them because she does have quite a few. I'm pretty sure that she can. But we're, yeah, she can. She, she can. can. And all of us can. Yeah. You just have to stop and slow down. And But yeah. I can't imagine. She's got 20-something municipalities or more. Wow. And, and all of them are, are, are wonderful places. And I'm not saying that they sarcastically. Are. So um, as the the leader of the Senate Democrats, you're in what I would consider an I was going to say interesting, but interesting is sort of a stupid adjective to things. You're, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're 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 in you're in a position that I think is different from say the House Minority Leader or or any other. How about you know, difficult? Difficult. <laughs> well, and I you know I don't know how difficult it is. Most of the senators. I served within the House. So mm -hmm. we had a relationship going in. Um, I hold the Senate in very high esteem. Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves as minority members and we're like, we just want to blow the place up. I don't think that that's good policy or good politics. I just think it's not right for the people in the state of Missouri if we can't sit down and try and work through these issues. And then when we stand up for hours on end as a minority party, you can tell that maybe we're not working through the issues like my 
folks in my caucus think we should. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not had a PQ this year. Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm very proud of that. You both know where yeah. what my issues are. They're labor issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got right to work in this state. I can do the math. There are nine Democrats. I was just going to say, like, <laughs> one thing that surprised me about, and right to work is shorthand that proponents use to describe a policy that bars unions and employers from requiring workers to pay dues as a condition of employment. I always make sure to say exactly what it is. I was kind of surprised that there wasn't an all-out filibuster on that. But on the other hand, when I thought about it logically, they were probably going to use the previous question anyway. So I think that there might have been a strategic decision to let that pass. Is that well, yeah, you know, we yeah, and so our listeners know PQ's previous question, <coughs> right? In effect, ends debate. Yes, and when we went into caucus and we talked about it, although I am the minority leader, I am one of nine. My issue of labor issues is not necessarily the fall on the sword issue for some of my other members. I, this is what I've done for a living. This is what my family does. I understand these issues. I know how harmful they can be, but they are not necessarily the number one issue for many of my caucus members. So when we gathered, I said, you can be with me, and I appreciate it. And if you're not with me, I understand that. You know, of course they support anti—they are against anti-labor legislation, but I don't expect them to carry my water. Mm-hmm. I really don't. And— um I didn't want to go to a PQ on something that I knew would be inevitable. Why would I blow be a part of blowing up such a great institution knowing going in that that was my end game? My end game was to take a bill. You know, before we when we had the governor, we yeah. had a backstop as you both know, yeah, right? Yeah, Nixon, Jay Nixon. That's right, with the Democratic governor. And if we Coster had won, you would have had a yes, backstop. Yes, and we don't have that backstop now. And when we were there before, it was our job to make the bills as bad as they possibly could. Mm. Make it easier for the governor to veto them. Mm. Now it is our job to take a bad bill and make it as palatable as we can to us. Now, we may not want to vote for it, but I got some amendments on there and some of the other bills that made the bills a little bit easier to swallow. Like, now. like for example, that uh, – the and I'm trying to the grandfather clause aspect yes. of it. So if you had an existing contract that required everybody in a bargaining unit to pay dues, it, it they still can until the contract expires. Exactly. Now, now will that be okay? Some of the ma- bigger employers like Boeing, because I had heard you know I mean I've been hearing this. I don't know if it's true or not, but I I had been hearing that they were less than thrilled about this just because it's easier if you. I mean, I've worked for union employers, and if they're large employers, sometimes they prefer it because it's easier than dealing with every individual worker. Um, so when they reauthorize a contract, then will, they will have to be it, they will have to be new ones, correct? Yes. That will, in effect, uh, well, follow the right-to-work standard. Do, when you go into negotiations, your contract lasts however many years. So it's right. still really a new contract every time. I think the contract I always worked under was four years. It was the longest our contracts ever were. Maybe they might be five years now, but it's still a new contract every October is when we signed ours. And from an employer's point of view, um, which which is interesting that I heard from some school administrators and school districts this year, uh, we like this because we know what our costs are, right? 
So you're not negotiating with each individual teacher, and this one isn't exactly. You know, so the the you know going in for your budget purposes, you know where you're at. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it too. Um, well, yeah, but with but when right to work goes into effect, then you don't. No, well, no, because uh, well, they can all still be signatory to the contractor, but you're going to have to go back every time and ask them to sign up. Mm-hmm. And in an industry like mine, where there's less than probably five, six hundred active members, are not an industry, but a local like mine, it's not as difficult. Mm-hmm. But if you have a teachers union or something that has thousands and thousands of members, mm-hmm. you know, you, we all do it at home. You push mail away. I've got a daughter that hasn't opened her mail in six months. It drives me crazy, and I, I'm, I go nuts. I'm like Kathleen. This is probably, it's from the union hall. Open your mail. Uh, Okay. No, you open your mail. Yeah. One of the things that I've heard is that right to work, it may not affect trade unions that much, but it may affect people that work in factories more. Have you heard that from from people? Or or do you think it's going to affect all segments of the labor union? It will affect all segments of the uh, union population because if you, the city of St. Louis, for example, they have hundreds and hundreds of electricians that are signatory to Local 1. Or maybe right. not Local 1, but it might be Local 2 electricians. Right. Um, there are hundreds and hundreds of painters in the city and county that work for school districts. So my question is to the attorneys, and I am not an attorney, is if you have one public sector worker that's signatory to your contract, does that make all of your employees or all of your members – public sector workers. Mm. So is your building trades contract subject to the public sector right to work laws? Mm. And that's a question that the attorneys are going to have to battle out when we start renewing these contracts. Now, my local does not have any public sector workers, but I know the yeah, electricians Explain to do. our listeners what your local is. My local is the Heat and International Association of Heat and Frost insulators and allied trades so the allied trades now is what was the asbestos part and those are the folks that remove the asbestos but carpenters as well as laborers do remove asbestos as well just depending on the jurisdictional nature of the job but Mm -hmm. we insulate uh plumbing systems hvac systems if you see a smokestack when you're driving down the highway there are a lot of pipes and insulations in them and we go in those and we started the at the bottom and work our way up on swingers insulating the steam lines. Mm-hmm. So rather than get – well, one of the things that I want to know from, from someone like you is I have heard anecdotally that a lot of members of labor unions not only voted for Donald Trump but voted for Eric Greitens. And the the latter per, the, the, the fact that they voted for Greitens was surprising to me because it was not really a secret that he was going to sign a lot of these anti-union things into law. I'm just curious if if you've heard similar things and just why that happened. Because I've heard things like they weren't informed or maybe they didn't actually believe he was going to do this. But it seemed like there was a lot of warning that this was coming. Well, and, it and didn't there were happen. several huge labor rallies that I covered yeah. where Coster yeah. and um, other Democrats, but Coster in particular, made clear about this. So I wasn't quite sure. I think I really what think happened. it was a combination of a lot of things. Yeah. The foremost being that people want to change, right? Because every place I had been, you know, uh, General Coster would say the same things. I have always said, right. always heard all these years the things that I like to hear. I would hear Governor Greitens, and there would be no substance there 
that I could see. Now, I can tell you, I spent all summer going to union meetings saying, you've got to vote right. If you don't vote right, then you're voting against your own financial interests. People did not listen. They were not listening on election day. They're listening now. I hear from them all the time, and I'm like, well, why didn't we hear from you in October and November? I work polls where I seen members that I know would say, I know what my union hall's saying, but I know what I'm doing. So we, our membership elected the president and the governor of the state of Missouri, and we have to take ownership of that. Yeah. Um, but people it, voted for change. They didn't necessarily believe the change they were going to get. I mean, on its face, that seems shocking to me because, again, it was not like Eric Greitens was being vague about what he was going to do. He was asked numerous times, will you sign right to work in the law? And I think he had to have said 50 or 60 times he was going to do that. I, I just can't I just can't really comp- compute it, basically. Well, uh, you know, and for somebody like me, it's we've always had a phrase, maybe they're not hurting enough yet. Here you go. This is what you wanted. You got a hold of this. Now you figure it out. And he did say he was going to sign right to work. He never mentioned prevailing wage until his state of the state. Mm-hmm. You know, and, that was a shocker to everybody. And kind of explain what prevailing wage is. Yeah. Well, prevailing wage is the wage that's set for public work projects on the in the state of Missouri. And when you've been on a prevailing wage project, which is a courthouse, a school, anything that is a, a public building, you start at a threshold for each occupational title, right? Right. So you start and painters get paid at least this much, and it goes up from there. It's the Missouri-Davis-Bacon mm-hmm. laws. Mm-hmm. Um, they are set, the big argument around that is that's not a, a prevailing wage, it's a St. Louis wage. So what happens, what used to happen was you reverted back to the next contract when there wasn't a wage in the, uh, to set the wage. Yeah, in in the region, yeah. Right, and then a few years ago, a group of us got in the room, very bipartisan group, and we changed that. And if there wasn't a wage in that county for that act title, it went out to the next county to try and make it so that the folks that were against it originally, they felt it was more fair that way. So if you're down in the boot heel and you don't have a wage in that county, then the next wage over mm-hmm. in that county would help you set that wage. And so basically a lot of Republicans, are are, are they just basically trying to do away with it completely or yes. do away with it in rural counties? Or well, I think that that group yeah. is smaller than you think. Mm-hmm. Um because the folks that are uh, driving the bills, it's either all or nothing. And if you listen to the business community, because it truly is, a, it's a business issue. And if you've noticed, you have not seen, you've seen some of our leadership out, like Mike Lewis with the AFL-CIO and Pat White with the Labor Council. Right. But you have not seen rank-and-file members up in everybody's face on this issue. It's their employer's issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing it does, it brings certainty. And you know that the job is done right. Uh, they came to me the other day and they're like, well, what do we do? I said, this is your issue. Go fight your issue. It's time if you really want this to stay the way it is, step up. It's your turn. We've been driving up there for years. I mean, okay, uh, without taking sides on this, um, but the what I've been hearing and reading is that without a prevailing wage, that actually you would have more out-of-state companies? Absolutely. Or um, even, I mean, because it it, it means that it, it means that the contract could go to the people with the lowest wage instead costs. of the lowest and the best. 
Right. And well, that's yeah, what yeah, the state of Missouri out, is. It takes out in the best. Yeah, it does take out in the best. And, you know, you'll have a lot of, I call them one-man shows, a truck and a ladder and a guy mm-hmm. coming in. And, you know, the opposition, I understand some of it. I They don't want to report, and that's the problem. And the reason that a lot of folks don't want to report their hours to set the prevailing wage in whatever county they're working in is because a lot of them might have a guy pulling wire in the morning. So he's an electrician. You know, in the afternoon he's laying concrete. Later on in the day he's insulating pipe or whatever. So that contractor says, well, I have to report on three different octitles. But if it was my livelihood and it was going to make the wage better, for myself and my employers, I'd want to report it accurately. And I got to tell you, I tried to get two guys that work. I, you know, I know their mother, and they work up for a non-union insulating contractor. Tried to get them in our our apprenticeship program. They were perfectly happy where they were. But you know what? As soon as this prevailing wage issue came up, they were all over my phone. You can't let this pass. These are non-union guys, and they know that come June, when all these schools let their jobs, that they might be making 3 or $4 more an hour in their school districts where they live with their tax dollars. Mm. You know, that's important. I work next. We work next to uh, non-signatory contractors all the time. Mm. And if people don't think that these guys like making more money, who doesn't like making more money? So do you think that this may be a an easier target to defeat than right to work because we've had Ryan Sylvie on the show and he meant he's a Republican from Clay County and he yes. mentioned that this would be something that they would fight to defeat and but what I mean it I mean efforts to basically kill the prevailing wage what's your prognosis there on is that? a very bipartisan group of us that are against killing the prevailing wage now there is none of us that say that we are not willing to uh, compromise we're willing to sit down and compromise. I have offered compromises, and and we're talking all the time amongst each other. Mm-hmm. There's three or four Republicans that are actively working with us. There's even more that um, do not support a complete elimination. Mm-hmm. And, of course, my caucus, all nine of us, none of us support elimination of the prevailing So wage. is this something that's likely um, to come up near the end of session? Because often— some well, explosive I, are, bills like that are come in the last two. We are getting fast and furious near the end of session. Right, and as exactly. you know, we have not uh, got hold of the budget yet. Exactly. And that's going to be the week of Easter, mm-hmm. or the week after Easter, starting the 17th. Let's talk a little bit about that. I think you've been on the Senate Appropriations Committee for a long time. No, I'm not on it anymore. Not anymore, but, but you, you were. So yeah. that my, my reason for bringing that up is you understand the budgetary process pretty well. And it seems like this has been an especially difficult budgetary year for a lot of reasons. Higher education has taken a big hit. It seems like those cuts are, are not going to be reversed. I think that there was efforts in the House to change how some of the money was spent among the Democratic members with mixed success. But now it comes to the Senate where it could be a lot different than the House. What's well, kind of your overall prognosis? The, the education battle is between the House and the Senate, but it is between the Republicans. They passed this bill a couple years ago, and when they passed it, they put the early childhood 
part on it. And the budget chair in the House says, we're going to do this. We're going to fully fund the formula, and we're going to meet our obligation. We're going to meet our commitment that we promised to early childhood education. Now, the budget chair in the Senate says we can't do that. He truly believes that it will cost $63 million. And I've actually been kind of looking at this particular aspect of it only because I'm like, it just seems like a lot of money. There is a cap on it. You can only, you can only uh, get up to 4% of all of your free and reduced lunch kids for a group of kids between the ages of preschool and like second, first or second uh-huh. grade. Right. So the cap is on there. Some districts, it's not going to be worth their while. I just don't think it's going to cost sixty three million dollars. And I hope we fund it because we all know that part of the problem with the education system is there's not a lot of early childhood education. And if you don't start, you have a little kid, you know, you know how young you have to start. And what really is bringing it home to me, uh, my daughter moved back in country with her husband and her two, her three-year-old and her one-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. So parents as teachers, I told her, you get in that program. And just to watch the my grandkids' development since they're in the home with me is astounding to me. And I don't know if I was just too busy when I was raising kids or I don't remember, but I don't remember their development being like this. Mm-hmm. But it's something you have to work at. And if we don't have the resources to do it in the communities – that uh, the folks are struggling to put food on the table. If we can't provide them with resources through our school system, we're never going to crack this nut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as far as you mean making sure that that because I mean making sure that kids are meet that minimum education read. standards yes. when so that they can qualify for college or for um, training programs or other things. Because I keep hearing um, that that in some cases. They can't qualify for training programs because they don't have either the math skills the or basics. the reading skills. Yeah. And that's that's not fair to any child just because of your socioeconomic background that this is where you end up because it just keeps repeating the circle. People like us three, we're very, we are not lighting the world on fire with our salaries, but I consider us privileged. Mm-hmm. We are privileged to choose where we send our kids to school, and we are privileged to live in the district we want to live in. It all boils down to a buck, and some parents cannot afford to live where they'd like to live or to take their kids to a school district, and it's not fair. What about higher education? Is there any chance that those cuts that that the governor proposed get reversed? I would certainly hope so because the people that end up paying in the end are the, are the students. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like to see cuts anywhere in education. But if they're taking it from there and they're not taking it through from K through 12, I'm not comfortable, but I feel better. Does that make sense? Well, here's the reason I asked that question. Because higher education is largely funded with general revenue, I know that there might be some federal yeah. money, but most of it's general right. revenue. When the budget situation turns south, there aren't a lot of places that you can cut because a lot of it is Medicaid and a lot of it is dedicated sources. Higher education is one of the places that can be cut to, to help balance the budget. And I, from from watching the budget discussions, I although I think that there's been a lot of criticism of what the governor has done, I'm just not really sure he had many other options as far as what he could reduce. Well, and Jason, I, you know, I don't know. I'm a basketball fan, right? Yeah. I, I like college basketball. Yeah. After that, I'm I'm all good. So I watch basketball games, and I'm, 
hearing this coach gets signed at this university yeah. and that university at this salary. Yeah, millions. What yeah. is that message saying to the students and the parents Although that are I, trying I don't know. to help them I think pay that, that money may come from the athletic department, but still, I yeah, understand what you're really, saying. But yeah. it's still part of the university, and the money has to get to the athletic yeah. department. And I know they exactly. generate a lot of that those dollars, mm-hmm. but to the regular person when they're hearing it, even though they don't understand all that. Yeah. They don't know it's going through the athletic department, and they don't understand that it's just not an education or uh, It's a whole market thing. But, yeah. Now, now, here's my question, though. I just did a story this week because I was looking at the budget numbers uh, that just recently came out a couple days ago for March. Okay, so I wasn't looking at March in a vacuum, and uh, I do want to say that um, for whatever reason I couldn't get the the acting budget director to talk to me last couple of days, but I was able to compare that with uh, January February. The bottom line is the last three months, if you take it in a in a continuum, there's they uh, right now revenue is actually running a little higher than projections, and um, so it's over four percent, like four point three percent for the fiscal year. Whereas the revised estimate, one things, once things started going south late last fall, um, was 3%. So mm-hmm. in other words, uh, you're looking at the bottom line, there may be as much as $200 million more million floating around, depending on whether or not this trend continues in April and May. Of course, it's the same time that you guys are crafting the budget. The thing I'm wondering is, is there being any attention paid to that um, the fact that the state could actually end up in better financial shape than it thought when the fiscal year ends June 30th. I mean, you may need another month to see kind of what, what the trends are, but when you do January, February, March, and you look at the numbers that the budget uh, division put out, there it's not as dire as it was um, previously thought. Yeah, October, November, December. Right. So I'm just wondering... If the if people are even looking at those numbers, well, and I think they are. I you know I stumble over the house every once in a while and listen to them debate when our chamber isn't in or I have a break. And I, I just love the House of Representatives. I love all the noise. I love the fact that it looks like nobody's paying attention when in fact I know that they are. And I was watching Representative Lavender find money all over in the budget. Yeah. All over the place. And it was the most remarkable thing I've seen because she'd have an amendment, you know, and they tell you over there, you want yeah. money in this? Go find it. So she went and found it. So she's finding whatever you want to call it, waste or whatever in the budget, and she's finding it there. And I'm sure that um, the budget chair, Fitzpatrick. Yes. Scott okay. Fitzpatrick of Shell Knob, a Republican. Yes. Continue. Yes. And I, I'm confident that he and uh, Rep- Senator Brown, I hopefully would put that money in wise places if, in fact, the numbers come out like uh, or or do they press for more budget cuts? Now, this is this is despite the fact that, you know, the that corporate tax cut that was approved a few years ago has been a sieve. I mean, so far uh, this year compared to last year at the same time, you're talking about uh, so far at least 80 million less just for that one. um, Yep. I forget the Senate bill and, number. But. And it may end up being more by the end of the year. So I'm wondering, because I know there's some have been pushing for some additional tax cuts. Do you think they use some of that extra income contending that helps for that? Or do they try to fund some of the stuff that's being 
um, slash. Well, I think if they have more money, they're going to have to use it to plug the holes, mm-hmm. to plug the holes from that tax uh, reduction. And I, you know, I guess I don't understand the philosophy. And the philosophy being, if you make these tax cuts, it's going to trickle down. You know, it never trickles down to my district. I just, I don't, I never see it happening when we have these people that come from gubernatorial appointments. They come see all the senators. And I asked the guy that was going to, uh, to he's taken over the Department of Revenue. I said, well, talk to me about taxes. Teach me. I said, educate me about how, what you're going to do over there that's going to make the tax burden less on my people that I represent. And the first thing he went to, well, we got to cut corporate taxes. And I'm like, but we've done that, and it's not helping my people. So I, 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 it's two different philosophies that are running parallel to each other, and they're in charge. I, I want to get your impressions of how the governor has performed over the last few months, because I know that he's able to sign a few major bills into law, but I also know that he's done some things that have made members of both parties in the Senate really upset, especially with the the pay increase and maybe even his e- emphasis on certain ethics things. I'm interested to hear your take on 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 how he's done so far. Well, I have not uh, met with the governor. Really? No. He was going to meet with us at our caucus and something came up and he was unable to meet at our retreat. So I, I did meet with him one night, but it was not on, it was not as the minority leader or anything. And I was called in to visit with him a little bit. Um, I think that the governor has got a new job, and he's doing what we all do in new jobs. I think that he's not as prepared as he should have been. I think he was as surprised as anybody else that things were going the way they were two weeks prior to the election. Mm. So he had to scramble pretty quick. I know he is surrounded by some good people, and I hope that they make smart decisions. Uh, You know, I I love the idea that we're going to give moms longer time off at home with their new babies and stuff but we have to be able to afford it Mm -hmm. you can't i don't think that it's wise to arbitrarily just say we're going to do that and make it for the executive department when in reality they're all your departments (laughs) so (laughs) that's a lot of people and i have heard that especially republican senators you're referring to his executive order allowing for paid leave right uh, a lot of the republican senators are are kind of upset he did that unilaterally with through executive order i i don't think it's necessarily because they disagree with the policy some of them do clearly but right. i think it's more of the fact that this is something that's not going to happen without cost and it maybe should have been passed by legislation well and i think that is exactly right um and it's a good idea. It's one of our democratic mantras. Yeah. You know, it's it's and that maybe that has an effect on the Republicans in the House and the Senate. They're like you're supposed to be a Republican. What's up with this? Yeah. But it, it is one of our deals. Yeah. So Now now the fact that he has I wrote a big story about this this week, so I'm mentioning this. Uh, these this well two 501c4s the mm-hmm. one that he's using actively now now for our listeners so you know they're a type of um, a nonprofit that allows the person not to report their donors or how their money is spent and they can spend up to 49 percent of it on political stuff mm-hmm. so um, there are other governors 
elsewhere and mayor of New York who have these. This has become a thing in the last year or two since Citizens United. Uh, but this is the first time in Missouri. Now, he's, got, he's funneling apparently a lot of his campaign. I mean, donors are giving to that, and then he's using it for whatever. At least one staffer is being paid by that. Um, is that affecting um, how the legislature is looking at the ethics stuff? And are there some people like yourself who are thinking, well, maybe I should form one of these too, especially with Amendment 2 now restricting um, donations directly to campaigns. But you can use this. donations and expenditures. Right. You know, which is really, and I read your piece. It was a good piece. It educated me. Um, the fact of the matter is, it, it, to me, that's the classic example of dark money. And he is a governor who ran on cleaning up these kind of things, and I'm going to be as transparent as ever. That's not transparency. If you, if you can't start at home cleaning your own house, you can't expect to do it elsewhere. Well, is uh, it affecting things? Uh, I mean, obviously the Democrats... Well, it may be. We've got a bill that we're trying to get out of committee that addresses dark money, and it seems to be languishing in committee. It's not coming out. Well, and I think yeah. it's a very bipartisan... Uh, now that state Senator Rob Schaff's bill. Yeah, yeah, and he's a Republican from yeah. St. Joe, who I interviewed. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And I read an article from the Kansas City Star, basically saying that um, upsetness over what Joe was talking about was affecting like a lobbyist gift ban or something like that. But lobbyist gift bans had opposition in the Senate before Greitens was governor. Correct. People right. have philosophical disagreements that this should be a priority. Frankly, there's some senators that take a lot of lobbyist gifts that may like continuing to take them. Is it really fair to say that the two issues are, are, are combined, given that backdrop? Well, yeah, I think it is. Uh, they made an issue out of the fact that he went to the baseball game the other night, mm -hmm. who paid for the ticket, and yeah. they're like, well, no, we invited him. Well, somebody at the end had to pay for that ticket, right? Mm -hmm. And I get dinged all the time if I go to the ball game and by the way, for you and your readers, I'm going tonight mm -hmm. <laughs> with a group. Yeah. But uh, I just don't think it's fair that we always have done this as a legislature mm -hmm. and as a society. When you make a law to restrict something, somebody figures out a way around it. Yeah. This is a new way of figuring out a way around it. Yeah. Now, don't look for me to do anything like that anytime soon, but I'll, I'll work within the parameters uh, partly because I'm probably not savvy enough to uh, do that or financially set enough to do something like that, and partly because of some laziness I might have. Now, before we, we wanna, don't want to get too far afield because we do need to talk about the zoo. Right. The zoo. We do. I love the zoo. Yes, and I want to just make it I, – I, I want to – I want to just let our listeners know that I am not an uninterested party in this issue because I love going to the St. Louis Zoo. And I have a zoo membership that I paid for. And, so. and, and my kids have zoo memberships that I bought for Christmas. It is, well, it that's is, what I did my, for Christmas. My, my three-year-old son, Brandon Todd Rosenbaum, loves going to the zoo probably more than any other activity in the entire world. So I, I, have, I am biased towards the St. Louis Zoo. I love it. But I am also a St. Louis City resident. We're, we, I'm, I'm surrounded by St. Louis County residents. <laughs> uh, we pay for the zoo out of our property taxes. 
And there is a proposal that you have carried to allow a number of counties, including St. Louis and what St. Louis County, the ring counties to, yes. to vote on a sales tax increase. Is that a fair assessment of what this is, first it of is all? It is a fair assessment. It is not a tax increase. It gives them the ability right. to take it to the polls for an eighth of a cent uh, sales sales increase tax increase so we were talking how many counties would this affect was, just so our uh, listeners now know. you know i have a substitute so don't hold me to this okay. that's why i didn't pull it up the other okay. day st louis st charles uh jefferson uh franklin and st louis county i said st oh st louis city yes yeah. yes okay. so, so yeah those those counties and for our listeners as we mentioned before St. Louis and St. Louis County pay for the Zoo Museum District out of their property mm-hmm. taxes. Yes. Every other county that is mentioned do not pay anything directly towards that. Is that is correct. So my question for you, and we talked about this a little before the show. We did. Uh, why should St. Louis and St. Louis County voters pay any additional taxes when those aforementioned counties have it? Okay. One of the reasons is this is not directly for what we use that money for in the zoo museum tax now. This would be for infrastructure, an aging infrastructure that's 100 years old. Mm -hmm. And they have an underground tour that I wish everybody in St. Louis could take because you could really see the need there. And it's for a breeding facility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To, uh, you know, our zoo is, it's, it's just a... Well, it recently was awarded like as the top zoo in the country by yes. one group just a few days ago. Right. Again. We failed to say that. Yes. Again. And it's free. Yeah. And I know that there are people on both sides of the aisle that say, charge. We don't yeah. need to have a free zoo. It, but in my district, people can't afford to pay to go to the zoo. Yeah, but that's the thing, though. It's not really free for St. Louis and no, St. Louis County residents. No, it's not free. No, you're right, Jason. It's not. And, and we I, do pay through for through our taxes, but we pay through for a lot of things through our taxes. Understood. That support the community. It's our zoo. It's a regional zoo that you know. You go to the zoo in California. What is it? Fifty bucks to it, get in. Yeah, I go to Brookfield Zoo or any place in Chicago. It's like thirty or yeah. forty dollars. So I is it I, as nice as ours? I've never been. Uh, no, it's no. not. No, and I'm it's not, not. And I'm not just saying that because I like the fact that there's no admission. It is not as nice as the St. Louis Zoo. You know, and an issue was made the other day that the zoo isn't free because you have to pay for the train or you have to pay for this or pay for that. My mom was a single mother of five kids, and on a Saturday she would take us. To the zoo. Yeah. She'd pack a lunch, make some Kool-Aid, and we'd go sit at the zoo. We'd be there three or four hours. Yeah. So, But I understand the reason to keep admission free because it is a, is, is a lure for tourists. And I think that I, I understand that mentality. Okay. What I don't quite get is for people that live in Jeffco or St. Charles or Franklin County that use it and that aren't putting any money toward it, why they wouldn't have to pay like a small admission. I'm not talking like $30, $40. I'm talking like $5 or something like, like that. Like they do at the garden. At, like they do at the botanical gardens. You know, and, ex- and I know people have brought that up, so I'd like you to explain Yeah, and that. if this legislation doesn't pass, <laughs> that might have to be an avenue that the zoo looks at, but I certainly don't support it because there are people that live in those areas that, would, you know, $5 is nothing. Yeah. But to some people, $5 is a lot. It's lunch for a kid for four or five days at... Uh, public school. But I just would be very saddened if our zoo all of a sudden had to start charging in a fee and checking IDs at the door to make sure via your zip code where mm-hmm. you live, whether you come in or you pay five or ten bucks. Yeah. And I know that there's people out there that 
fiscal conservatives that like to reduction in taxes that don't want to. But yeah, well, I think this yeah, I've yeah. been hearing since this issue came up this week. And mm-hmm. by the way, the bill has never been introduced on the floor. And we've talked a lot about it on the floor. Yeah. But I have heard from a lot of folks that don't necessarily have my same perspective politically, but they support the zoo and they they think that this is a good idea. Now, you want to talk a bit about the little the Onder episode? Yeah, because it, <laughs> that's gotten what we're about to talk to has gotten more intention, attention than the actual issue. And National I think, attention. And I actually National think that, and I actually yes. think the actual issue is mm. extremely important. Hence the reason we talked about that first. But just explain what Joe was talking about. All right. The other day we were on um, abortion bills. And they got laid over, and we were supposed to go to the zoo bill, but we did not for one reason or another. We went to a seniors farmers market bill for Kansas City area, and um, the senator, the senior senator from St. Charles, took issue with it and wanted to talk about the zoo, which is his right. Senator Bob Onder of Lake St. Louis. Yes, a which Republican. is his right. He circulated. He did not offer. He circulated an amendment on our desks that would rename the zoo. Um, the Midwest Abortion Sanctuary City Zoological Park. I cannot say zoological, but continue. Zoological. Yeah. You can. So. Zoological. Well, there's other words I can't say. So, and that is his right. This is, a, uh, these pro-life issues are very near and dear to the senator. They're very important to him and to his constituency. So I looked at the amendment, and I didn't think anything of it. Till then, he started on the floor talking about it. And the whole point of it was that he does not like the fact that there has been uh, something at the Board of Aldermen in St. Louis that says you cannot uh, discriminate against folks who have had an abortion. And it's not really that simple because a lot of folks on social media, well, what do you walk around with a sign saying, I've had an abortion? (laughs) And it's not. It's more of a real estate thing for facilities that might uh, provide these services, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. But it's a protection for them. To me, that is a matter of local control. We continue to beat up on our our cities. Um, The folks in St. Louis City should be able to decide on a lot of these issues where they want to go. And he took issue with it. So the zoo got caught up in it, and he had put that amendment out on our desk. Now, you know, a lot of stuff is saying he's offered it. He has not offered it. He talked about it. He couldn't offer it because the bill was never brought up Mm -hmm. on the floor. Well, and then I got aggravated, which we, you know, tensions can and emotions run high. I tweeted about it. And it took off, and I didn't realize that people really paid attention to my tweets, but apparently they do. No, it has attracted national attention. I've been seeing that on Twitter. I mean, national news. And I I got a statement from uh, Senator Anders, chief of staff. Um, I will probably post it in the web post, but he had a very— I think we've posted it somewhere. I've seen it. And I I just want to let our listeners know that it will be there, but— I, I actually was more interested in this issue because of the actual bill as opposed to his amendment, which I may be the only person in America. To, maybe Joe is, too, because you like the zoo as well. Well, I love yeah. the zoo, yeah. and yeah. I'm interested in the bill. I'm carrying it. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, as, is, do you think the amendment makes it – I mean, okay, it hasn't been offered. But the, even the threat of it being around – I've seen this on other bills – does it make it more difficult for your bill to come up if people think he's going to stick something like this on it? I don't think he is. 
I mean, after I've seen the statement from the zoo and I've seen other press and then I've read the senator's statement, if uh, you've read his statement, right, Jason? And mm-hmm. he said what he thought about the zoo and he really he liked the zoo. But um, it just got out of hand because we talked about everything that is bad that I support mm-hmm. working you know, bills that help working people and how I'm against bills that um, tear down what we know is the working middle class. Mm -hmm. And that's where it went, and that's what saddened me. I just, it was a very emotional couple of days. Mm -hmm. I just felt like I was hated Mm -hmm. in everything I stood for. Mm -hmm. And I reiterated that to the senator. I Mm -hmm. let him know that I felt that way, and he let me know by all means how he felt. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure we'll move on from here and hopefully set this aside and get to work on other things. But the fact of the matter is I have stood up on these issues, and I will continue to stand up on these other issues, and he takes issue with that, and that's a lot of where that came from. Well, Why does he object to the St. Charles well, you know, zoo. actually, at one point he was fine with the bill, and then about a very short time later he was not fine with it anymore. So I don't know where that comes from because they don't have to do it. This gives them the tools to do it, It basically right? puts the option on the table. Yeah, if the option's to, on the if table. If they but wanted to put it on the ballot, they could put it on the ballot. It, I mean, to be honest, if that was up for a vote in St. Charles, I think its chances of passing are not very high. And it's not because St. Charles people don't like the zoo. They just typically haven't supported funding things in St. Louis City because of the distance or they don't want to pay for it. But that's it. the whole yeah. point of the bill. Yeah, exactly. You said the word. Exactly. Optional. Exactly. You know, you get the you have the option. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with the zoo optionally giving these people or the state legislature giving them the opportunity to do that. Does the zoo need uh, the approval of the General Assembly to do what the Botanical Gardens does? Where, where you I have... do not know. I mean, I will, I mean now, you know, just so you know, I'm a, I'm a member of the Botanical Gardens. And you probably belong to all the clubs, don't well, you, Joe? No, those three <laughs> things. And because of that, I eat peanut butter sandwiches for lunch. Every day, because I don't go out, and it's because I do, you know, there's a couple things I, I like to like do. I don't like peanut butter. <laughs> yeah. My well, mom would give the boys peanut butter. I eat grape jelly. But but my point is, because I do yeah. personal sacrifice, because those are things I Well, you do sacrifice, but I bet you take that peanut butter and jelly sandwich to the art museum or the history museum, don't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, And but my point is, because I'm a big art fan. And and if you go to the Art Institute in Chicago, it's like thirty five bucks. Right. Yeah, it is. I've been there. So yeah. and, and that's one of my favorite places, but it's really expensive. People in St. Louis have no idea how good they have it as far as the artistic um, uh, facilities in this um, region. And that's my little advertisement yes. there. But but back to, but back to my point. Can the zoo automatically do what the Botanical Gardens does, where they do charge a little bit? Um, or do they have to have state approval to do I that? I don't know that they would have to have state approval, but that's a good question. And yeah. I, I'd but, find but the, the, zoo, answer people, out the for zoo, you. zoo people don't want to charge admission. No, They're they do not want to. That. that board does not want to do that. They're very proud of the fact that they can present a world class zoo at no cost. I mean, a lot of these places, we've talked about it. There is a charge, and they're not world class operations. Now, before we end the show, I'm going to do a lightning round. What Joe, what is your favorite animal at the St. Louis Zoo? Uh, the giraffes. Senator? Cully. 
Collie the elephant. Oh, Collie. Oh, the, the polar bear. Collie is a polar bear. The polar bear. And one of the reasons I like Collie is because uh, my two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, who is bilingual and doesn't really speak English well yet, uh-huh. I understand when she's ta- talking to me about Collie. Now, my favorite animals are the hippos. The hippos are fantastic to watch. And on that note, everybody should go to the St. Louis Zoo. I don't usually take stances <laughs> when we talk to our, our, our people. I know we've, we've, we've had a public policy discussion, but I just had to say on the outset of the discussion, I'm not unbiased. I love the St. Louis Zoo, and you should as well. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... At Jay Manis. J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. How would people follow you, Senator? At Walsh Chino. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. Gold line's gonna tell me where the light is. Gold line's gonna tell me where...